You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. You know, sometimes I get in these moods where after a long day of work and other stuff, I, okay, this this is a bad habit. I will openly admit that it's a bad habit. And you probably have this bad habit too. I go ahead and I take it, uh, my laptop, over to my bed, and I get in my bed, and I'm on my laptop. And I'm on my bed, on my laptop with my dog. And I'm on my bed, on my laptop with my dog and my cat. And then the other cat jumps up. And then, you know, after about 30 minutes, I just don't want to get up. And it's in these moments where it's like this this personal struggle jumps up between me where it's like, you know, I'm so creative. I'm so relaxed. I could do so much. But then I have to go downstairs and I got to get the studio set up. I'm going to have to be sitting up more. And then the dog doesn't want to lay on the bed because the cat's on the bed. On the bed. And then the other cat comes by and fights the cat and the dog for the bed. And it turns into this whole thing. And by then, I'm usually telling my fiance, um, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to go sleep, I'm going to rest. And then she can always, like, instinctively know when I'm getting behind the microphone, because then that's when she decides to call me a bunch of times. And then if I pick up and tell her that I'm doing something, then it's like, well, I thought you were in bed. So it's one of those situations where it's like, I just can't win. So hopefully no one's been too offended by me doing these episodes where I'm literally just in my bed on my laptop with my dog and my cat and my other cat all, you know, toasted, all just, you know, real comfortable, real creative, and a real laid-back, laissez-faire type of mindset, and we can just go ahead and talk, because I think you'd rather just go ahead and get the content, and it doesn't sound like I'm speaking through a can, so the fact that I've got my laptop right, like, pressed up against my chest, uh, right underneath my chin, I, I hope uh, I, I hope we can just live in the moment, understand this is raw. I mean, I've done episodes like in basements of other people's homes. I've done it in my car. You've heard the whole gambit. You know this on the run mentality is you just got to do what you got to do sometimes. And sometimes what you got to do is you got to have all your animals smothering you asleep under a sheet with your laptop pressed up against your chest and your face. But other otherwise, it's a, it's a good day. I'm prepping to move, as I've told you probably a million times. So these monologues the last couple of weeks and probably the next couple of weeks are primarily me just reading, reacting, pulling up stuff on the internet that I found interesting that I hope you will find interesting. And uh, this article, so somebody criticized me 
uh, and I think the criticism was fair. It's like you only read consumer blogs. So consumer blogs, I don't even know if that's the real term for it. It's blogs that are attached to businesses or brands that sell you stuff. And the whole purpose of the blog is to create a narrative around a product. Therefore, if you read the blog because you're, you're expecting to learn something, you'll end up basically being pitched it in a creative type of sense. So that way, when they go ahead and start plugging in their products or services, you feel more inclined to go ahead and take them up on that. I totally understand that. But at the same time, you know, the people that are testing these products or services are also the real professionals. They're not just a lot of these, you know, uh, freelancers and reporters and commentators and stuff like that who really don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I'll go ahead and give somebody at like, you know, uh, Huckberry's journal more more credit than somebody at GQ who's talking about shit that they don't really understand anymore. It's gotten to the point where it's like, you know, I might as well just know that they're trying to sell me something instead of being slowly manipulated in a place that's really trying to tell you, oh, yeah, we're totally objective. We're totally fair. You think I listened to the Under the Hood podcast by Robin Hood because I think the guy's not trying to make me like Robin Hood. The whole thing's a PR scam. It's a whole – well, it's not really a scam. It's a PR campaign. Because everyone knows that Robinhood is the app is still like the sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, the whole thing was only done to make the CEO and the company not look evil because of the GameStop debacle from back in January, as well as Dogecoin uh, from the last month. So, you know, the whole thing is meant to go ahead and bring on other people to make the CEO seem nice and la dee da. And hopefully, you won't think that Robinhood is turning into another evil corporation, that type of thing. But with that said, uh, I'm back in politics thanks to the new job. I'm really enjoying it. But at the same time, it's like I'm not of politics. Uh, it's not like when I was uh, you know, doing previous stuff where I was a political consultant, where I was working in media full time, where I had to read stories and commentary about stuff that I genuinely didn't really care about, but I had to do it. Um, what I'm trying to do now and what I've tried to do over the past year specifically is when I read something, I want to read something that I genuinely want to read. Now, what am I reading 90% of the time for fun? I'm reading comic books. Hell, I have a whole show dedicated just to comic books, the Second Print Comics podcast, which you heard the commercial for right before we rolled in here. But, you know, I got to read other stuff, functional stuff. I got to read actual articles and books again. Can't just depend on Audible for all of my uh, 2021 reading list to just go ahead and speak to me as I'm falling asleep at night. So I went ahead and grabbed a few articles, and these are things that I'll spread about the next couple weeks or so. But really what I've been getting more interested in is uh, travel writing, outdoor writing, adventure writing, because, I mean, you can't fake these things. These things are happening. These things are based off real people's experiences, and it's one of the few areas that I have found of uh, of content online where it's also not political. It's not jumping into too many things. You could just really sit down with anybody and you know be told these stories, and they, they are genuinely interesting. They're genuinely trying to make us think more, act more, be better in a way that pushes us outside of our comfort zone. And it, it, it seems like there's this mentality that like all the hills have been discovered, all the mountains have been climbed, all the lowest depths of the sea have been explored – all the crazy things now are just for excess and pleasure. And while that might be true to a degree, I mean, we need to question, okay, that might be what somebody else has achieved, but what have you achieved for yourself? Uh, you know, a few weeks back, we talked about 
me going on these road trips around the country and stuff. And honestly, uh, I hate it when people are like, well, why'd you want to go see that? You just Google it. It's because nothing is truly real unless you see it yourself. Um, that's why I love travel so much because it's not just about the destination. It's about the journey to get there. And the thing that I have rediscovered about myself is this love of adventure because even misadventure, the times that kind of go, you know, like off course and unexpected where things might get a little bit hairy every once in a while, even misadventure is better than misadventure. And I am a, a watch collector too. So, I mean, this ties in two things that I really love. I really love watches and I really love travel. So one of my favorite brands is actually Boulder. It's technically called Boulder Supply Co. They're a Singaporean watch company uh, that aims to create watches that are targeting really outdoorsmen and, and not, not I wouldn't say athletes, but I'll say people that are, are, are traveling and just need a good watch. I actually went ahead and bought myself and, and now Boulder isn't paying for this. I wish they would. Uh, because I spent a good a good amount of coin on their products, I actually bought myself their Boulder Venture uh, Field Watch. It's made of titanium. It uses a Seiko NH35 movement, extremely accurate, super lightweight. Thing is, it's a 38 millimeter watch, which for me, someone with a seven uh, seven and something inch wrist, it looks a bit smaller. But when I look at like watches from even like 10, 20 years ago, it's considered like an average watch. Um, you know that if you've been listening to this program for a while, I had my dad on a couple months ago. My dad's a big watch collector. He's who got me into watch collecting and he wears big watches. Now my dad's also a smaller guy than me in both stature and size. So he looked at that watch and he's like, that looks like a kid's watch on you. And then I go and I show it to other people. I'm like, does this look like a kid's watch? And they're like, dude, it looks like a normal sized watch. It's like the size of a watch that it should be. And as I go back and I look at photos of like these, you know, these explorers and these expeditionists and stuff like that, they're all, you know, they're all like manly men. They're wearing what I consider normal sized watches. So it goes to tell you that if you see me wearing that watch, I genuinely like it. But it also kind of jumps into that aesthetic of this adventure who I want to be. So I haven't been able to go and do much with that watch yet because I only got it recently. In fact, I did take it to Hershey Park. So, I mean, that was that was technically a day trip where I did something fun. But, um, you know, I'll be taking it with me on, on some road trips and some other stuff that I'm doing just because it's a comfortable travel watch. I mean, I, I always feel like I have to wear a watch or else I'm naked. So I might as well wear the lightest, most durable, functional watch I can get for going out and doing stuff outside and things like that. But Boulder has a blog section called B-Roll that I check out every once in a while. And I'll just forewarn you, uh, at the end of the articles, they're usually always asking people to check out their products because that's the point of these blogs. But whoever's actually writing them, they actually tend to do a pretty good job of interviewing. Um, I don't know if the people writing them have actual like journalism experience, but just from a writer's perspective, just as a reporter – uh, type mindset. I really do actually appreciate the way the, they write these. So I went back uh, a few days ago and I was just kind of rummaging through it, trying to see what stuff I haven't read because I was just on a kick with this. Like these are really good stories about hikers and surfers and mountain climbers and people doing just absolutely crazy shit. And there's this article that popped up. It's from August 27th, 2020. And it, it really kind of, you know, reached out to me. This is probably my favorite story on the blog thus far. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read it. 
and we're just going to have a conversation. I'm just going to go ahead and interject my thoughts. And the challenge at the end of the episode is reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, however, however you know how to catch me on Al Gore's Amazing Internet. And uh, let's just go ahead and talk about this because I think everyone wants adventure. We just think that there's this barrier and ultimately I'm telling you that this is the world's laziest travel podcast. And if I can go ahead and make a trip at least once a month to go do something cheap, fun, and cheerful, I think really anybody can. So let me just go ahead and look at my dog. Oh, she's so cute. That's the other thing. When you're doing this, you just get distracted by the cuteness. She's all snug like a bug on my blanket. Oh, we could do this, folks. We can do this. Okay, this is Exploring the Human Spirit, A Boulder Journey with Mikhail Strandberg. Talking with Mikhail Strandberg is comparable to meeting a real-life sage from an old explorer's tome. Highly interesting, often surprising, and effortlessly enlightening. Mikkel was born in Sweden in a humble countryside village decorated with fields, forests, rivers, lakes, and wildlife. Ah, that sounds nice. Automatically, I like this person. I don't know if you guys have met Swedes in the past, but Swedes are just like, like, I'm not going to say they're like super friendly. Like, they're not like Canadian, go out of your way friendly, but they're just very peaceful people. Like, a Swede walks into a room and typically they're going to bring whatever tension or pressure is down, and they just get along with anyone. I like Swedes. Anywho. Uh, who this close proximity in nature, along with his sister's affinity for travel, sowed the seeds of what would become a real life of inner and outer exploration, living one day at a time and constantly learning through experience. His excursions have earned him a formidable reputation amongst the world of adventures, covering a hundred countries over 34 years as a professional explorer, fellow of the Explorers Club, and fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. I probably don't meet the criteria showing either of those, but could you imagine telling people, yes, I'm a member of the Explorers Club and the Royal Geographical Society? That is, uh, I think the Royal Geographical Society is is the same society from that movie, the lost city of Z where they try and uh, send out that one guy to like South America, find like this ancient civilization that existed like a thousand years from the Mayans and stuff like that. And then they end up going missing. I think they also sent that guy up. I think it was Sir Edmund Hillary or something who, who went to Mount Everest and he died and his body is still like frozen. Like you can go actually see like his, frozen body and it looks like a porcelain like mannequin because of the temperature and stuff like that i think i think a lot of their members end up dying i could be wrong but um i'm not saying that to discredit them i'm just saying that i think that's probably the only way i've ever heard of them if i'm thinking of the right place kind of a morbid thought but now you're going to think about it seriously go google um mount everest bodies it is one of the creepiest things you will ever see. Just these people who have died decades ago, perfectly preserved by the snow and the ice and the cold, and this eerie as shit to know that people go up there for fun and they have to pass these. It is like dur- during the lockdowns and everything, I watch like three or four documentaries about people doing Everest expeditions. I look at that shit and I'm like, it's not worth it. Like, I, I don't think, like, it's just something like that is just not freaking worth it. I, I, at least that's just my opinion. You know, my father went to airborne school when he was uh, a few years younger than I am now when he first joined the army. And, like, nobody really dies at airborne school. I mean, people have, 
but it's like very far and few between. And it hasn't happened in like 30, 40 years. Like the, the Army Airborne School is one of the – is like the best in the world. And I always ask my dad, it's like, why do you want to do that? You could die. And he's like, yeah, but you know, I look at the risk and I look at the training and I trusted what I knew. And once I got past that initial fear, the first jump, the second and third jump and the jumps after weren't that bad. If anything, it was just following a rhythm. And I think that's how it is with really anything. I bet if I got into mountain climbing or something, the idea of doing Everest would be less intimidating. But the fact that I've already like seen all the Everest bodies already shows me that I really don't want to do that. And Everest takes a life like every year at least. Um, I think in a few of those Everest documentaries I watch on like Amazon Prime and stuff, like a couple of people died during that. I'm pretty sure like one of the Sherpas died in like the first episode and they weren't even anywhere near the summit. So uh, things that make you think. Things that make you think. Anywho, uh Mikkel now lives with his two daughters in Malmo, Sweden, and is already planning his next adventure to the Arctic Circle in twenty twenty one. Ooh, wonder if that ended up happening. August. Yeah, so, oh, this is well before COVID and everything, because that, all that shit would happen in, like, March. So this came out in August. I, I, should, I should do a follow-up and see whether or not he actually ended up going. As an explorer, uh, Mikhail embarks on daring projects while documenting his experiences, which can further our understanding of the world we live in, as defined by the Explorers Club. He has now made six documentaries, most recently of which was the award-winning depiction of his time in Greenland, where he stayed with his family for a year before having to return due to his daughter's health difficulties. We are glad to find out that little Ava's condition is stabilized, and even as we write this, August 2020, Mikhail and the girls are on a 35-day cycling tour of the northern region of Sweden. Wow, you either have like the world's most patient kids or you're the world's like strictest adult or you just got really lucky and they love doing that. Because a 35-day cycling tour of an entire country, like holy crap right there. And I'm, I'm looking at a photo right here. They have photos throughout the article and it's like those kids, like one, you hope they keep up with you. Two, you hope you don't deal with too much heavy traffic. And three, like that's a lot of stuff they're carrying on those bikes like I don't think I would ever – like I, I I see those people who strap things to the top of their cars and stuff like that. Even if they're like in the big like container units, you could put on like a truck or something. And even I'm always constantly afraid that those things are going to like fly off or something. I'm, I'm incredibly paranoid. So the fact that they've got like these sacks on the side of their bikes makes me kind of nervous. I don't think I would do that. So now we're into the interview section. Uh, they ask, how did your love for exploration begin? He replies, largely due to books. Brother, I totally get you. Same way for me. Robinson Crusoe, all that stuff. Freaking love it. Alex Ryder, uh, that series for uh, young adults. That was that was what really kicked me as a teenager. Really loved this stuff, much like many other men. Largely due to books, when I started reading books of all interests, it showed me a part of life that you see very little of in a village where I grew up. I actually preferred reading in the library over going to school. The more I read, the more I opened up my mind and eventually started traveling as a backpacker. I spent almost a year in India when I was 18. Oh, man. You know, I don't think I've ever been to another country where they didn't speak English. I'll be straight with you. Like, you know, in parts of Mexico, they in, like where I live, like along the border, like they spoke they, – they all, they all mostly spoke English. Uh, when I was in Quebec, Canada – 
like they all knew English, but they purposely spoke French because it's like their Quebecois national type of thing. They're they're kind of dickish about that. But uh, I can't imagine being 18 in a country where it's like nobody speaks English. That takes some cojones right there. Uh, traveling pretty much all over the country. During that trip, I met a guy who told me about his cycling expedition from Ireland to India, and it really inspired me to become a storyteller through my travels. Ireland to India? Isn't Ireland an island? So he couldn't have ridden his bike over the sea. No, he had to have taken a plane, train, or automobile at one point. So does it really count, though? Like, is it, like, continuous cycling? Did he, like, swim across the sea with the bike in tow? That doesn't seem plausible. I bet he filmed a documentary about it. I'll have to look into that more. But uh, that that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Okay, wh- whatever. I'm thinking too much into it. And uh, what really inspired me to become a storyteller through my travels uh, next question, what made you decide on India as your first destination? Mikhail tells us, well, it was actually because of my interest in Theravada Buddhism, which led me there. It's uh, I know what that is. That's, that's kind of like a sect of Buddhism that's more indigenous to India. Uh, it's not like what you'll see in other parts of East Asia. Uh, I wanted to visit, uh, I'm going to fuck this up, Dharamasala which is where the Dalai Lama stays. I was searching for the meaning of life, aren't we all, dude? Basically, and somehow thought of being there seemed like a good place to find answers. I had an idea to become a monk. Oh, brother, you're 18. You don't want to cast away all the women out there that you're going to want to have some fun with, please. But uh, being there and experiencing their way of life taught me that it wasn't really necessary. As interesting as their life can be, they are just humans like anyone else after all. So I figured I could just let life teach me the lessons I needed to learn. Also, the group-based monistic living was not my idea of fun. There you go. There you go. And the fact that he has multiple kids shows, you know, he knows what's up. Uh, that's when I decided to do the bicycle trip of my own. I looked at the map and realized that I could cycle all the way from the southernmost tip of America, which is Chile, all the way up to the northernmost tip of America, ending in Alaska. That was in 1986. Cross-country cycling wasn't as popular as it is today, so I got some attention from the press back home in Sweden. I did two more cycling trips after that, and along the way, someone from Swedish television asked me, why don't you bring a video camera with you? And that was how I started out documenting and making films out of my travels. I learned everything as I went, no formal training, for better or for worse. The more I did it, the more it got me thinking about what would be my next expedition. And I got to say, that's what I love about the internet. That's what I love about everyone creating content. We get to share things that we wouldn't have otherwise ever been able to see. Uh, I mean, that's what I loved about Anthony Bourdain. But, I mean, Anthony Bourdain really kind of set the standard for what travel journalism and that type of stuff was. But the amazing thing about stuff like YouTube is you've got channels like Fearless and Far and Lexi Limitless and Yes Theory and you know, even to a degree, my my show, The Witch Agar, which is a ghost hunting paranormal TV show. But I mean, we have access to doing things now through technology that you know have really are really able to give people an outlet and expose us to the world that's not just dictated by cable TV. So, just food for thought. 
why are you alone on these expeditions? How did your family respond to your newfound lifestyle? I can certainly tell you that as much as I like to solo, solo travel, I still get shit from it from everyone around me. They're always like, you're going to die. You're gonna, something bad's going to happen. And I'm gonna, don't get me wrong. Like something could happen, but nothing has happened. And I mean, I'm not going out and doing anything treacherous. So, you know, it's all about the risk you're willing to take. But let's see what he has to say. Mostly alone, yes, but you meet many people along the way. Nowadays, I have my family with me who give me a lot of perspective in addition to being great company. Although, as a young traveler, going out on my own was an invaluable experience, which I highly recommend. As for getting started, it's just an innate feeling that I had to go explore the world. You either have this inkling or not, and when it it, it, it required going away for long periods of time. It was just normal to my family. They knew that it was something I wanted to do, so it was never an issue. And, and we had Joel Hensley on a while back, and he did his 50-state uh, road trip, or I think it was 48, because I don't think he visited Hawaii and Alaska. So his, you know, his his uh, continental American road trip where he did it by himself before he was married and had kids and stuff like that. And the one thing I think we talked about maybe afterwards was like, you know, we don't solo travel because we want to get away from people. We solo travel because something is kind of blowing us towards that. And at the end of every trip I've done, I've always really valued more of the time I spend with my family and my loved ones and everyone when I'm back because it, it, it kind of teaches you a little bit about yourself. You end up appreciating it more. So I think that solo travel actually brings people closer together as a result than if you hadn't done it, especially in a year where we were all just kind of stuck with each other. You know, going a few weeks away uh, during the lockdown and stuff feels like a million years during those types of situations. That's drastic, I know, but uh, I mean, I think uh, I, I think distance makes the heart grow fonder in a way. Uh, with the amount of cross-country travel, did you encounter trouble with immigration officials or authority figures? <laughs> This is, this should be interesting. He's got a photo of him with a camel. I've I've never ridden a camel. Well, maybe I did as like a kid, but I don't know. Camels camels seem cool. You ever see a movie, The Scorpion King, with The Rock from like two thousand? He rides a camel, and everyone's riding horses, and as they're doing a cross Egyptian type type of quest, like all the horses die, but the camels totally cool because they're not meant for those situations. Yeah, camels. I I dig camels. They're cool. Uh, well, yes, and unfortunately, those positions are often filled by people who enjoy making others suffer to justify their power. Uh, you take it as something that comes and be patient. Nowadays, I prefer to go places that are generally easier for travelers, although there are exceptions like Russia. Uh, I still like going there a lot, even though it's costly and tough to do. I don't think he goes there with a the camel. Uh, what was your first documentary? The first documentary I did was about riding in Patagonia on a horse for a year. During that trip, I delved deeper into the questions of who we are as human beings. What's the name of the documentary, man? What's the name of that? I hope it comes out somewhere here. I don't want to go. Spend time trying to Google it, only find out it's on Amazon. Then when I go on Amazon, it's not even Prime. Come on, bro. Uh, again, life needed to teach me, so it was about having more experiences. So I decided to learn from yet another way of living that's quite alien to a Swedish-born lad. I went to live... With the Maasai in Kenya, I walked through Maasai land uh, while there was a terrible drought. I would see humans and wildlife wasting away, an occasional lion who was too weak to do anything in extreme heat. Oh, talk about bad timing. Or maybe it was the right timing because it gave him some perspective. 
It's all about how you see it. Uh, we just walked through the desert land, not realizing that we had passed through a plot of land owned by certain Maasai people. They would pop up suddenly and ask for money as, quote, tax. Wow, taxation is universal and always evil. Uh, for passing through their land, there was a lot of negotiation involved, mostly in English. I tried to pick up a little bit of my uh, their local language, it's quite poetic and descriptive. I mean, instead of saying stuff like, I'm hungry, you say something like, my stomach is rumbling. You know, this is the thing I noticed in Australia, especially from like British expats living in Australia, because if you're a Brit and you live in Australia, you'll live like a king because of the pound. Uh, but British say that when Americans speak English, we're speaking like children, whereas when they speak with the Queen's English or something, it's less to the point. So like that way he said about saying like, I'm hungry, a Brit would say something like, it's time for dinner. And then that's why I like Australians more because they'll just say, I'm fucking hungry. But you know, that's how it works. Uh, it was definitely one of the toughest, the most complicated expeditions I've undertaken, but a rewarding one too. The African people are just fantastic in general. And I learned a lot from them, particularly the Maasai. They are strong, kind, and generous. In other parts of the world, people have a certain image of the Maasai being tribal, red-robed warrior types, but that's just a romanticized picture painted by early explorers and the like. Uh, next question. Have you ever been to our neck of the woods, Singapore or Malaysia? Yes, he replies. I've been a few times now to Kuala Lumpur. I probably screwed that up too. I'm sorry, I'm an American. For speaking engagements, but the first time was when I cycled up to the east coast of West Malaysia, uh, going through uh, Taman Negara, our national park. Um, I have to become more worldly. I can't just keep mispronouncing these things all the time. But hey, maybe I'll get better, and then you'll look back at this and be like, you know, Remso wasn't always a moron, or something like that. It was very beautiful. Malaysia has the best food in the world. Every city you come across spoils you of Chinese, Malay, and Indian food that's simply forgettable. Upon viewing your TED Talk about trekking through negative uh, 58 degrees in Siberia, I almost said 58 degrees. I'm like, what? That is negative 58 degrees, probably Celsius because they're not American. Uh, we couldn't help but wonder, how did you go to the toilet outdoors in those conditions? This is the most important question of the entire interview. I need to know this. Ha ha. Well, the good thing about humans is that we put on fat around our private areas, which helps retain some body heat when it's time to go. It's a quick affair because of the cold, but it's never really a problem in the summer as the ice melts. Oh, come on, Dobie. I don't want to have to edit so much right now. I've got so much shit going on. Uh, it's a quick affair because of the cold, but it's never really a problem. In the summer, as the ice melts, it gets washed away conveniently. Huh. Alrighty then. I just want to know if he brought toilet paper or not. That's, that's the only thing I really care about. You've spoken about the fear of almost freezing to death while you were there. Have you felt fear like that ever again? The fear of my daughter's health is much worse than any fear I felt for myself in Siberia. Fear can be useful for, on explorations. It keeps you on your toes. Also, I was somewhat prepared for my Siberia, wrote, uh, my Siberia trip by staying in the coldest inhabited place in Scandinavia. In another way, growing up in Sweden also prepared me for the cold virtually since birth. But the fear you feel for a loved one is a whole different ballgame. Whatever it was, we had to take action and face it head on. Years of exploration, living, and uncertainty does help, though. By going through hardships, 
you're doing the hard work and heavy lifting required to face the adversities of life. Life can be very difficult sometimes, but facing challenges gives you the tools to meet the hardships as they arise. Wow. That's, uh, I like that. That's very on point. I really do. I've, I've got nothing to add to that. That's perfect. Um, when our bodies are pushed to the extreme, this is the reporter, uh, endurance athletes often speak of experiencing hallucinations. Did you encounter any such hallucinations on your travels? <laughs> what? Oh, I, I, mean, I mean, it must be something from like, you know, being tired, hypoxia if you're climbing, stuff like that. Let me see. I'm, oh, I, this, this is new for me. I'm not an adventure athlete, but this, this, is a, this is an interesting question. I've never actually been asked that question before. Okay, he's never even been asked either. Uh, the best thing about being an explorer is having an extremely short memory. Experiences come and they move on, so I don't actually remember if I did hallucinate, even though I may have. That being said, I'm quite good at not pushing myself uh, too much in order to conserve energy for the next day, so I managed all right. Interestingly, I didn't find the conditions of cold weather or deserts as challenging as the humidity of rainforest climate. The humidity drenches and drains you. I found it the most difficult. As far as Siberia was concerned, it was not easy, but I fell absolutely in love with the country. One of my favorite places on earth. Colder the weather. I mean, cold weather, but warm people. Uh, what country are you keen on visiting again? There are just too many to name. Well, don't worry, bud. Half of them won't let anyone in right now. As of right now. Uh, I went back to Russia to film uh, festivals in which I won awards for my documentary in Greenland. It was wonderful to be back in Siberia where I met uh, even more warm and engaged people. They are genuinely curious, so they really like that. Both Russian and Siberian natives are wonderful people. Uh, you've met people from all nationalities. What are some of the common traits you find across the board? By today's media standards, it's easy to conclude that humans are, well, evil. Um, but believe me when I tell you, I could count on one hand the people I met who were unbearable. Most of them are overwhelmingly nice, warm, and generous. In fact, the harsher the living conditions, the kinder the people. Another common trait uh, would be the need for exchanging stories. This is why I love traveling. I mean, the stories you get from just regular people as you talk to them, as you get to meet them, uh, they're stuff that are better than spending 15 bucks on a movie sometimes back when you could typically go to movie theaters. Um, socializing and gossiping is incredibly important for human beings, I realized. No matter where I went, it was quite a defining trait of any group of people. We feel closer to one another by involving ourselves in each other's lives. There is also a trait of being prejudiced. Unfortunately, wherever I would travel, I'd encounter people who are prejudiced. I never came across a culture without it. Racism is a very human trait, and it plagues tribes, neighborhoods, and religions alike. However, it is comforting that these people remain the minority, at least in my experience. In the past year and a half we've had, that's one of the most important things. We need to understand that like, it's not because of one thing or another. It's just because there are assholes in the world, and we just need to move past them. I'm so glad that he got asked this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip a couple of these questions just because I, I kind of want, want to wrap up. Uh, do you have any books you would recommend? My favorite author on all levels is Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, who wrote many great books. I recommend all of his work. And I also like Salman Rushdie. Uh, 
I can't eat. Uh, oh, he says Kafka. I can't even pronounce one of the guys, among many others. Okay, dude, but tell us a book. I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, that's good. Uh, I've never read Salman Rushdie. I haven't. Uh, lastly, any advice for budding explorers? <laughs> I like I like his answer. Just go. And they, they, uh, they put go in all caps. Just go. Ha, ha, ha. I've received hundreds of emails from people who are interested in becoming explorers themselves, which is always encouraging. I would say that you have to develop courage to do what others consider delusional, crazy, and impossible. Create and cultivate your own vision for adventure through thorough research, reading as many books as you can, and meeting people with experience. It is also important to learn skills required to sell your vision to possible media partner and sponsors. Uh, follow your heart and vision and keep yourself fit by doing regular exercise. Don't waste your time listening to naysayers because their negativity stems from jealousy of not having the guts to do what you do. Amen, brother. Amen. Prepare as much as you can possibly. And finally, read the first point again. And uh, just got to point out the last photos of him from, you know, at the time of this article. And he's wearing, I think it's the the Boulder Expedition GMT. Beautiful watch. Beautiful, beautiful watch. Would have gotten that but didn't want to pay the extra $100. So I uh, learned a lot from this. I mean, what I love about reading these stories is like these are people that actually do things. It's why I stopped – admiring pundits and commentators so much when I was like really deep, deep, deep in the political sphere. It's because these people have no clue what the fuck they're talking about. They've never done anything. They've never had real jobs. And they talk about things that are so outside the realm of understanding that it's almost it's almost borderline offensive. So when I see explorers, adventurers, travel photographers, people that just want to go out and learn for the sake of learning this is where I feel like I end up asking myself a ton of questions, and it just wants me to go out and do more. So please, if this went ahead and inspires you, just go out and do something. I had somebody reach out recently and tell me that after listening to the Atlas Obscura episode, him and his wife started an Atlas Obscura account in their state. I think they're in Ohio or something like that, and they're going to begin uh, you know, tracking stuff down in their own neck of the woods, and that's beautiful. I mean, they're not full-on adventures, but they crave that adventure. They might as well be adventures because they've got the spirit and they're doing it. I commend that and love it, and I hope that they have a great time in the process. But hey, I'm about to pass out right now. As always, it costs you nothing but means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows across Al Gore's amazing internet. Peace be with you. Be good. Be safe. And I'll talk to you later.